Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right. How's it growing, friends? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I'm Keisha, and I'm one of your moderators. Happy Thursday, Mandy. Hello, my co-moderator, Keisha, and hello, everyone. We're here for episode 70. Wow. Can you believe it? We're also going live over on YouTube. So if you're logging on over there, make sure you send us your questions and I'll get those to the team. I'm here to remind you also, if you're active on social media, be sure you're following us on all the platforms. So we're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. But all right, you guys, let's do this. We got a ton of crop steering questions this week. So let's get right into it. Back over to you, Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. All right. If you're live with us here and you have a question, type it in the chat at any time. And if your question gets picked, we'll have you either unmute yourself or one of us will ask for you. Seth and Jason are in the house. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing pretty good. Yeah. Good. It's a beautiful day. Can't ask for much more. Yes. Same. I know. So grateful. Happy summer, y'all. That's why it's officially summer. All right. You ready for our first question? We got a lot. This one came in. We didn't get to it last week, but um, I want to know the answer to this question. Scaff was wondering, what are the benefits of having an oscillating fan blowing on your plants? Airflow? Yeah. I mean, we want to keep fresh air moving around the room. I mean, obviously we've got gas exchange going on. We want to get, you know, all that uh, oxygen that's being produced out of the canopy and move it out and replace it with CO2. And then also that airflow strongly affects leaf surface temp and the VPD right around the leaf surface. So that's, you know, at the end of the day, everything we do in the environment is really targeting optimal conditions in that first few millimeters around the plant surface. So that's what we're looking at. Airflow can massively change that. That's how we can take a a plant that's got a leaf surface temp that's plus five degrees over ambient room temp and bring it back down into a reasonable range and also promote good transpiration. Well, yeah, another reason as well is, you know, try and get uniformity in the uh, air temperature of the room. So typically, you know, in one corner, we might have an HVAC system. We, we need to make sure that that air gets dispersed uh, throughout the, the room. Um, you know, that being said, uh, other than oscillating fans, I really like HVAC socks. They're one of my favorite ways to, to get good air movement throughout the room, uh, you know, disperse the, the temperature of the AC or uh, heating air. And, uh, you know, they don't push too hard on the plants as well. So you don't have to worry about like fan burn um, if, if your plants are getting pretty close to the air socks. Yeah. I mean, a good way to look at it is if you've got any source of air movement, whether it's a fan, uh, a vent register coming in, anything like that, if you can put your hand in front of it and walk away. Uh, you pretty see pretty quickly see a diminishing you know diminishing amount of airflow going across your hand if you can use a sock to help direct that airflow in the appropriate places. We've seen people using both overhead and underneath the benches from time to time to push airflow around to the right place, and it it actually becomes really important when you've got a, a very big room. You know, if we're in a four hundred square foot flower room that's not very big, we can actually get some good air movement with just regular oscillating fans or lift fans. But once it gets bigger, we want to like try to work as hard as possible to eliminate any of those microclimate situations there. And the oscillating fans are a great, great start, really, especially for a, a small space and where you have enough access to put them evenly distributed. And if they blow far enough in, you're going to get some good air movement. Excellent, y'all. Already blowing minds. All right. Ton and popping on YouTube already. What's happening, Mandy? Thanks, Keisha. Yeah, Poppy Gross has a question about high pH. I'm growing in one gallon pots with 6.0 pH. Uh, my res is at 2.7 EC um, and my taros reads 4.8 to 8 in between feeds. Dry back overnight hits 11 to 12 EC. Runoff EC is at 5.6 pH. Um, let's see, is is it way too high? Uh, yeah. Do we have some advice about pH in this situation? I mean, it sounds like he's getting pretty good results. Honestly, with cocoa watering in at that 5.9 to 6.0 is pretty standard. And we, we actually do want to see a small drop in that EC when it comes out in terms of runoff, um, especially if you're getting proper runoff, you're not having any channeling or anything going on. That's telling us that the plant is pulling nutrients out which you know we've, we've discussed this before basically you're pulling negative ions ions out of solution uh, the more positive ions you have the lower the ph is so basically if 
your pH was coming out higher and we're seeing bad plant health, we would go ahead and say, hey, this plant is having problems uh, uptaking these nutrients. But because we're putting it in at an appropriate pH and pulling it out at an appropriate pH, we know that the root zone pH is stable in the range that we want it to be. Keep doing what you're doing. I didn't want to interrupt you again. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't question yourself too much. And you know, also remember, guys. Like sometimes, you know, when you drift a little bit outside of these norms, like we always say, five point six to six point zero is a sweet spot, and that's just because that's where you get optimal uptake of uh, all the plant nutrients we want and the right amount of restriction on things like nitrogen that are pulling up. Uh, drifting outside of that range a little bit isn't a huge reason for concern. Like everything, we're always playing a game of averages here. If we took runoff from every plant across the whole table, some might be five, six, some might be five, seven, some might be five, four. Um, what we want to see is a stable trend in close to that range. If we're seeing a downward trend, we're going to run into some severe uh, plant nutrition issues because the plant's basically deficient of everything at that point. And then same on the other end. When you go too high in pH, the plant can't take up nutrients in appropriate fashion. So that's why we're really targeting that 5.6 to 6.0. And yeah, just, just keep rolling. Watch it to make sure you don't go too far outside the range and then recognize that like, if your pH is drifting down, the plant's pulling out you know, negative ions. It's pulling food out of solution. So uh, you know, number one, that's a good thing. Number two, we always want to balance that pH, because again, if it goes too low, we're going to have some severe plant health issues. So really keep an eye on that. And then yeah, keep doing what you're doing. sounds like you're pushing the right amount of runoff. You're not letting things get too stagnant in there. Uh, just, just keep on rocking like you are. Yeah. You know, if you want more resources on, um, you know, specifically what the nutrient solubility is at different pHs, Google search nutrient solubility pH chart, uh, and there's going to be different charts for different types of media. Um, mm-hmm. it's just kind of a great way to get a visual on where the different, uh, macro and micronutrients are most available to the plant. Yeah. And you know, if you're, especially because you're already taking, you know, actual substrate data readings, like even if you're not using, uh, a time series graph, but you do have access to time series data and real numbers from the root zone, you can also start to determine whether you actually have, uh, a high EC lockout situation, a lower high pH situation that's causing the plant to not uptake nutrients. You can really navigate those waters of what the heck is going on with my plant with a little more clarity because you can kind of eliminate certain problems just by knowing like, I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who are really concerned that their EC is getting super high. And we have to say, hey, no, it, it really isn't compared to everything we see out there, but what's your pH doing? And if their pH, runoff pH is at 5.2, no amount of over or under fertilizing is going to fix that. We've got to solve that pH problem to get the plant back into a zone where it can uptake nutrients. That's great advice. Um, Poppy Gross did come back with a little bit more information. Basically, my question is, why is my pH hitting 10 and up, but my plants are still healthy? You guys have any advice? Mm. pH is hitting 10? pH or EC? It says pH. I would calibrate my pH meter. Yeah, I was gonna. Over I was gonna say <laughs> that's if, if we're that high, we'll definitely see some deficiencies going yeah, on in the plant if, very quickly. If the pH was ten, you could stick your finger in that runoff and get burnt, <laughs> kill the first few layers of cells on your finger skin. So I would, I would really look at calibrating that. Uh, you know, for reference, um, the higher end pH meters that, like Jason and I, like to use as reference points, you calibrate every single time you use them, even if that's ten times a day. Uh, with set standard solutions that you can rely on. And if you don't have a high-end pH meter, it's worth investing in one. Absolutely. And at at the bare minimum, do your your redundant checks, you know, get a good standard solution, do a multi-point calibration, not a single point. And then, uh, you know, those little paper strips as old school tech as they are, are always pretty nice if you find yourself with an unbelievable number. It's kind of uh, same thing. We'll see like some outrageous EC numbers. Like, is that thing really 30? And then we go look at it and there's actually just a different problem with the sensor where, uh, it hasn't been cleaned and it has salt buildup all over it. So anytime it gets wet at all, it's reading a really high reading. The good old litmus paper. Yep. Yeah. Walmart I remember has it. those. Yeah. You can From get through class. aquariums. Yeah. They're, they're awesome. everywhere. They're very available and, uh, it's not quite as 
precise. It depends. I mean, if you're colorblind, blind, that's going to be a rough <laughs> one for you. But uh, otherwise, they're they're a good a good mark to see if you're you're close at all. Because I know myself, I've chased several problems that just turned out to be a bad reading. Um, we're, we're looking at a lot of different sensors to control everything in these systems. And, uh, you know, once you've got like, let's say four pH pens running around in a facility and each person owns that, but not everyone's calibrating every day. Well, now we're all disagreeing about who's mixing their tanks correctly. So it's important to make sure everyone's on the same standard when it comes to units of measurement. I have a kind of a fun anecdote back when we were growing, uh, I, this, Work, working on looking at my climate systems, doing some HVAC um, modifications in the greenhouse. And, and I noticed that, hey, my, my light levels are super low and uh, ended up going into the, the greenhouse and someone had put the climate station on its side. So the light sensor was <laughs> they said 90 degrees off. And I was like, oh, okay, nothing to fix here. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. It's like something that you don't even think about, but yeah. Calibrate those sensors, growers. Um, We are getting so many questions over on YouTube. So I'm going to go on to this question from John. For home growers, John wants to know, for home growers using LEDs and no supplemental CO2, is there a standard PPFD number or formula that we should shoot for at the various stages of grow? So example, PPFD in early veg, uh, veg, flower, late flower. What do you guys think? I mean, I... I personally, you know, if you're using LEDs and you don't have CO2, you probably don't have a huge operation. Um, probably don't have a lot of overhead cost into lights. I would run them pretty high. Yeah. I mean, the, the tough thing is, you know, we got to look at your ambient CO2, uh, depending on where you live, that can vary a little bit. And depending on what's going on in your house, that can vary a little bit. Um, you can run them fairly high, you know, uh, personally what I do since I'm not supplementing CO2 in my home is I mount my big LEDs way up at the ceiling and then I can just adjust intensity a little bit while they're growing because I'm so overlit for the amount of CO2 that I have that, you know, if I crack over 800 PPFD at the canopy, I'm not, I'm passing that point of diminishing returns. I'm just not seeing uh, a lot of yield or quality increases. And because it's LED, I'm not necessarily torching the tops of my plants, that leaf surface temp isn't getting so high that it's putting that plant into drought stress mode. We're just wasting photons at that point. Uh, so I, I call it about 800, 800 PPFD at the canopy. You're not going to see a whole lot of benefit above that. And if, uh, you know, really accurate CO2 sensors are quite expensive. So if you are looking at a home grow, I would probably count on about a, you know, three to 500 PPM baseline of CO2 in your ambient environment. And then, you know, top that on the fact, like, do you have a, what, what is your space? You know, do you have a tent in a sealed room? How often are you exchanging that air? So you're not just running out of CO2 during the daytime, because that's a, that's a very easy thing to do. If you just seal up a room and have no CO2 input, you're going to slowly ride that PPM line down over the days. So in a home grow, how do we get more CO2 for like free? We get, get more pets or have more parties. Yeah. Breathe. And then there's, there's a bunch of products out there that home growers can use, usually like uh, inoculated grain bags for different types of mushrooms and things like that to increase CO2 in your, your little home grow tent or room. Uh, personally, I've, I've always wanted to play with uh, brewing <laughs> in a room, roughly the same area as, as my plants are. That way I can circulate air and exchange it because um, yeah, CO2 systems are spendy and uh, if you are, if you do happen to be growing in a, a building that's habitated, you don't always want to run a risk of just pumping your CO2 up to like 10,000 PPM in the house and not necessarily waking up in the right state of mind. Hey, that would be a cool experiment though, brewing beer in your grow. Oh yeah. I mean, there's, there's several companies out there that do sell the, the mushroom inoculation bags. I mean, you can grow edible mushrooms inside of your little cannabis grow if you want to. We could, we could do uh, aquaponics and brewing. Um, yeah, get some tilapia and beer, some, some bud. <laughs> maybe maybe I not make the beer with the tilapia water. Yeah. <laughs> Mutualism at its finest. Awesome. Thanks for that, guys. Um, Andreas has a question. Will a high EC in bulking, for example, an average of seven to eight EC with a nine-hour irrigation window cause early ripening in the end of week five? Thanks. Love the show. For... Most strains, probably not. Um, I mean, that's still within a, a reasonable range that I don't mind being during um, during your bulking stages. So you might see certain strains not like to be up there. 
Um, just got to take notes on, on how they perform when they finish up and document it all. Yeah. And, you know, a big thing to look at, I mean, that the crop registration and time series data is insanely important when we're talking about EC building, because if we're looking at bulking being in a, a six to a nine range, what's really going to dictate whether that's appropriate is how, how your buildup was to that point. You know, if we only ever hit a, a four to a five range in generative, and then suddenly we're trying to really stack it up in bulking, that might give us some unwanted stress. We want to have our, our baseline for EC set by the time we roll into bulking. Um, otherwise, yeah, usually we're looking at other cues to really help those plants finish up. Once you go to 1212, they're on a determinate timeline. So they've got X amount of days that the plants want wants to go. And it's not necessarily just days. We're looking at, you know, energy inputs and uh overall basic goals and plant development. But usually, yeah, something environmental. Um something I always like to check just because I tend to struggle with this from time to time. Uh, but check your drippers. Sometimes when I look out and I see some plants that look like they're trying to finish early, I'll go find that, whoa, this one's only been getting about 60% of the water that I put on everything else. And I'm subjecting it to the same environment. So it's it's kind of behind, uh, maybe developmentally or advanced because it's trying to cope with that little bit of drought stress that you're throwing at it compared to everything else. Yeah. And if we need to you know, bring our EC down just a little bit, uh, get a tad bit more runoff, either yeah. increase your, your P2s slightly or just try to get a little bit more runoff when we hit field capacity in our P1. Absolutely. And, you know, it always goes back to crop registration when you're trying to figure out, you're trying to relate your uh, EC changes to your runoff amounts. So always write that down. And then, <coughs> excuse me, as you do it more and more, eventually it becomes fairly intuitive to go, okay, with my setup, I push, uh, I, I add 40 seconds to an irrigation cycle. I know that that's going to give me, you know, let's say 35 seconds of runoff based on what I had before. And now that I've done this a hundred times over, I can usually predict how much EC drop I'm going to see after that runoff event, or if that's going to be what it takes for me to maintain and not raise or lower. Awesome. Solid advice, y'all. Um, yeah, let us know if you have any follow-up questions. Lou has a question and it's a little bit long, so um, bear with me, you guys, as I get through all of this information. Would you recommend a freshwater reset once uh, once a week when irrigating for desired drybacks while not pushing runoff in order to help regulate pH? Um, do you recommend pushing more amount of runoff each irrigation event and allow for an increased dryback period to allow pots to go from 60 to 65, reading down to desired water content? We have found an irrigation strategy of one large P1 shot during stretch up to three P1 shots in bulk back to one large P1 shot during ending generative with no P2 other than emergency shots uh, works for us. Basically increase runoff to regulate pH and increase longer dryback time or limit runoff during the week and do a freshwater flush once a week to regulate root zone pH. Dude, I did it. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like we've got... Uh... Kind of two questions in that one. Yeah. Uh, you know, first off, the question was freshwater flush. Uh, and then the second question would have been um, irrigation strategy. So let's hit the first question real quick. And uh, my answer is going to be, I don't like to do that. Um, it, you know, if I need to regulate my pH, then usually I'll just try and find what the cause of my pH issues are. Is it a nutrient imbalance? Um, is the nutrient composition not appropriate for what that plant is eating? And uh, to address that, you know, we can always send in for leaf tissue analysis and that would give us an idea of what uh, nutrients are high in concentration in the plant. Um, and, uh, you know, we, you know, if it's not that big of an issue, then let's just put, push slightly more runoff with our standard fertigation, um, units uh you know we'll be maybe three to four ec typically and, and just run run that and see if that helps correct your ph problem but uh as always any type of, of fresh water no nutrient levels um those are going to drastically affect what our salt concentration in the block is what our nutrient concentration is and, and we don't want that to change drastically fast uh, that's going to cause some issues as far as how the osmotic potential um what those plants are used to uh they get accustomed to the amount of nutrients in the block. And we don't want to change that really quickly. Uh, obviously we can alter it over time when we're stacking or when we're doing some, uh, some ripening and, uh, answer is no. Yeah. Don't, 
I'll agree with that. If you're having, if you're finding yourself feeling like you need to reset with like, uh, uh, my strong guess would be if you're trying to maintain pH, you're resetting with like uh, pH 6.5 fresh water with no salt in it. Um, that that's a, that's a bandaid situation. Um, you know, when we're watching that EC creep up, there's two things, you know, one, we're putting osmotic stress on the plant. And the other one is we want to think about what the composition of that EC is. So if I'm getting runoff and that, that pH is creeping down, that means my nutritional balance is off. So even though my EC is high, it doesn't have the EC that I actually doesn't have the salt that I actually want in the block. And that's where pushing more runoff and, you know, it, it kind of seems counterintuitive sometimes, but actually running a little bit higher feed EC. So, you know, just like Jason said, running between a three and a four, you know, it's over the years, we've seen this, this baseline feed EC creep up <laughs> from back in the day, a 1.8, 2.0, 2.5, 2.7. Now we're creeping up to 3.0. And, you know, a long time ago, it would have been crazy to feed that high, but now we're kind of discovering with once we take control of plant nutrition and we're really controlling everything going on in the substrate, sometimes feeding more of the ions we want into the block so that we can push out some of the ones we don't want is a better solution than just chasing the higher EC. You know, and a good thing to remember is we're always looking at that EC baseline. Like if I, if during my dry back, I see that EC creeping very high, Again, if my pH is off, that's not the EC I want. So I want to make sure that it's a good balanced approach. And uh, again, if, if you're pushing that uh, freshwater push to try to maintain pH, I would guess you really need to push a little more runoff, maybe up that feed EC. And yeah, just keep an, keep an eye on your runoff pH. You know, I would any day rather save my pH then try to push higher EC as my pH is creeping down. I want to keep that plant in a healthy zone and then understand that if it's week three of stretch and I haven't hit the EC goals that I wanted to, if I wanted to be at a, a six to 11 and I made it to a four to eight, uh, it's going to be better for plant health to maintain pH and stay in that lower EC. And then next round, come back and go look at, look at it holistically and say, Hey, what was my stack looking like? And where was it? And that's where, again, crop registration, runoff notes, having as much of a picture. So when you look back and say, hey, we're pushing uh, too much runoff for our first week and a half, we need to kind of dial our irrigation strategy to be lighter during that time so we can build it up uh, steadily, not just have it flush out, flush out, flush out till the plants get big enough that we're actually not getting as much runoff. That's a great point as far as, uh, you know, trying to just adjust your EC in order to do that. Anytime that we're underfeeding the plant, pH is going to be really hard to control. Uh, obviously with good nutrient balance, we're always trying to have the right amounts of each nutrient in solution that are being fed to the plant. If we're underfeeding, a lot of times it's going to run out of one of the specific nutrients that it prefers. Uh, and that's a lot of times going to be show up as a deficiency in the plant and hard to control pH. Yeah. And if you're, you know, if you're, if you're new to using, uh, things like Siemens to look at EC rather than just PPM. I mean, understanding that with the systems we're using and with this level of control that we, you know, not just Arroyo, but in general has been introduced into horticulture. Um, we are pushing these plants a, a lot harder and discovering that our baseline ECs can be a lot higher than uh, a lot of growing tech 10 years ago would have told us, you know, and that's just because well, we say cannabis is pushing the envelope. It's a, it's a high value, high performance crop. We're looking to get the most out of it and not, not terribly worried about inputs. You know, everyone has a budget, but like cannabis farmers are generally willing to up their inputs, up the cost going in to get a higher quality and higher yielding product out of the other side. Whereas if I'm in the wheat field, just outside of this building, I'm looking at what's the minimum I can put in to get an acceptable yield. Yeah. Well, let's hit the, the second part of that uh, question. As far as I'd like through uh, generative stacking, doing one P1 um, through bulking three P1s. Um, so you know, it sounds like maybe some of the strains that you're running are more, uh, more vegetative leaning type of strains and that's what they might prefer. Um, so it, it's going to kind of come down to how far are we leaning on that spectrum? And so overall your crop steering strategy is going to be slightly more generative throughout the entire cycle. Um, and so it, it might be a good strategy. I, I personally, um, 
even if I'm just doing, you know, one hour irrigation window for P1s, I like to have multiple shots to allow the capillary effect of that substrate to catch up with my irrigations. Um, and that way I'm getting up to field capacity before I'm getting any runoff and I'm not wasting any uh, irrigation solution. Yeah. You know, another thing to consider too, if that's how few irrigations you are putting on and you're actually able to put on that one P1 without a massive amount of channeling, that would kind of lead me to think that you're using a fairly large size media in like the two gallon plus range. And anytime we get to that point, especially with different cocoa mixes, we do have a small amount of cation exchange capacity that comes into play. So basically that cocoa can hold a small amount of ions, but the more cocoa you have, the more it can hold physically. So at that point, if we've got, say, a 15% dryback on a two-gallon pot where we might have a 30% dryback with the same size plant on a three-gallon pot, I now have less control because I have less opportunity to pull that lever called irrigation and adjust the EC and pH in that root zone. I don't have as many shots or as much volume to really flush that out and reset that balance. So, I mean, that's part of why we're seeing, too, you know, with hydroponic systems in general, uh, a kind of a drift over the years towards a smaller and smaller media size. You know, I mean, personally, I get the same size plant out of a one gallon cocoa pot that I used to get out of a three and a half, well, bigger than I used to get out of a three and a half gallon cocoa pot, you know, six years ago or so. So that's uh, definitely something to look at as well. If you've got this big battery that's being charged up by all these ions and it just can't, you, you can't fully discharge enough of it to get a good charge back into it. That's, that's something to consider. The old irrigation lever, huh? Yeah. Pull it. <laughs> See what happens. Great. Great crop steering advice, y'all. Thanks for covering those questions. And yeah, Lou, um, let us know if you have any follow-up. Um, we're still getting questions over on YouTube, so I'm going to get to this one from Poppy Grows. So just curious, assuming my readings were all correct because everything else seems to have been where they should have been, if my pH is coming in at that high nine above, um, so high nine, uh, region. What do you suggest and why would my plants still be so healthy? Um, I'm looking at, it just basically, this thing has them worried about pH runoff um, and they've been monitoring it for a few days and it doesn't change. Do you have any advice for them? pH coming in at nine or we like, that's, that's confusing in the pH I'm thinking or in the, the runoff samples. Oh, oh, gotcha. pH runoff. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, I would, uh, I would be slightly concerned about that. I would certainly watch plant health and probably not try to push the EC levels too high. Um, again, I would really invest in uh, probably an alternative sensor. That's pretty unlikely. And then the, the next thing to look at is your, your substrate composition. Are you running straight cocoa? Do you have some amendments in there? And uh, if you're running organics and a lot of biology in there, uh, we're looking at a whole different host of interactions than standard runoff EC and pHs. So that's also something to consider if you've got a lot of calcium carbonate in there or some other buffer, you know, that used to be a, a pretty standard thing to mix a few different types of calcium and other, you know, carbonates for high pH into your cocoa to have some kind of buffering, you know, um, a lot of times home growers, especially back in the day, didn't have a pH pen. So the way to deal with that was to buffer your media. Um, if you're following a mixing tech that has some of that going on, but now you're actually pHing your input water, and not putting in, let's say, a, a 4.8 pH salt mix with tap water that you have unmonitored and you need buffering capacity for, if you're putting that in correct, that buffering may be uh, upping that. And I'm not sure that's for sure what's going on, but that's, uh, that's definitely another thing to look into, especially um, outside of commercial production. I know it's really popular to kind of implement your own mix. You know, you might get some raw cocoa and add some biochar, some limestone, some azomite, various different minerals to help buffer. And uh, while that is useful, um, it can throw off some of these smaller readings. And that's part of why we look at using, you know, basically straight cocoa or rock wall on a commercial level because we're eliminating variables. Yeah. And, you know, like in most any hydro, soilless hydro system that, I, that I've worked in, if I get over 6.5, you know, if I'm creeping up towards 7 for pH, I'm going to see that in the plants pretty quickly. Um, so I, I would definitely investigate further to see what's going on there. Absolutely. I wish I had a solid answer for you, buddy, but there's a few spots that, uh, it definitely could be. And I just kind of start eliminating any of those possibilities one by one. 
Awesome. Thank you for that. Poppy Grows came back with, my Gromy is on the way. I think that means um, homie who grows. I love that term. Um, that's new new to me. Um, is on the way with his sensors to check out what you yeah. said also. So I'm hoping it's my meter, like you said. Um, awesome. Thanks for that question, Poppy Grows. Good to see you again. Um, we had another question. Uh, Lou came back with a couple more um, pieces of clarification. We do use two gallon pots and we actually have not seen any uh, channeling. pH is coming back way lower than feed pH. Is it a bad practice to have to wait longer than 24 hours between irrigation events in systems that steer fairly heavy generative cues? I like to have a media size that allows me to irrigate every day. Um, you know, these, these plants are, they're cyclical and we train them to start drinking uh, after lights come on. They, we want to train them that every day. And it's, that's kind of really what's going to give us the ability to do crap stirring is the fact that we're in a sized media that allows us to control what type of irrigations are affecting that plant that day. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, a common thing I see if people are struggling with some of these pH issues, especially with, if they're comfortable with their plant size and you're already at so few irrigations that we're talking about going, you know, a whole day without irrigating and riding it out. Um, switching to like a one gallon pot might actually make your life a lot easier because now, now that you can water every day, you have the opportunity to reset that ionic balance. So if I've got, again, a one gallon pot and I'm replacing 30% of that volume, uh, that's going to have a bigger effect on what's going on in that media than if I have a two gallon pot and I'm replacing 10 to 15% of it. I want to be able to take advantage of every day to control what's going on in that substrate and the bigger dryback we have. Uh, also the more opportunity we have to put input water in and affect, you know, what's going on in that root zone. So really balancing that plant and pot size sometimes is one of the easiest ways to overcome this kind of, this kind of challenge. And, you know, if we weren't, and, and if we look back, you know, go back a few years, that's where some of these texts come in, right? Like we're using a media that has some CEC, we're watering with feed every other day or three days in a row, then taking a day or two off or some combination of putting salts on, expecting them to remain in the media, and then putting water on to re-wet it. And what we're trying to do is have a much greater level of control than doing that. Awesome. It's all about getting more control. Um, I think that's it for the questions on YouTube for now. So I'm going to pass it to Keisha for our Instagram questions. Thanks, Gromy. Poppy Gross. Appreciate you bringing that gift into my life. Okay. So it seems like pH is the theme of the show. I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, bring this question here. Dave is having issues with low runoff pH. He writes around week six, I'm getting runoff at about 5.0 pH, while my feed pH is usually consistent, 6.1 to 6.2 and 2.5 EC. I'm in one gallon cocoa quick fill pots. I usually push a good amount of runoff. 10 to 15% after the P1 and we'll get some runoff as well on the P2 bulking shots. What am I missing here? Still not enough runoff. The environment is on point. I noticed a slight tip burn and it made me check the runoff, which was five to 5.2. Yeah. Uh, interesting one. Like, so it's tip burn. And it took me a while to figure this one out, but uh, a lot of times tip burn is actually not a nutrient excess. It could be a nutrient deficiency. And if we're going in at two, five, there's a good chance that that plant is just eaten up all the specific nutrients. Um, and it's, it's pushed that, that pH down. So I, you know, I would probably, um, take two routes. One, either give it a shot to take your uh, EC up to say three O, um, you know, especially if, if you're in a, in a well-rounded facility where you've good, good, good control on environment, you got CO2, you got good lights. Uh, I probably would be always above three. 3.0 in that, uh, that time frame, And then the other option would be, um, leaf tissue analysis and get an idea of what, uh, what nutrients are either in excess or deficiency in that plant. Yeah. I would, I would really look at that incoming feed EC. A good way to think about it is if we have a, you know, two stacks of positive and negative that are the same size. If one of those, if, if that total stack pile is let's say 10 inches tall or 10 gallons, whatever you want to quantify it as, but if that stack is one size and then, you know, that represents a 2.5 EC. Now I make that stack three times as big and go up to 7.5. If the plant's pulling out the same amount every day of each stack, when it pulls out of that smaller stack, that's going to affect my pH balance way more quickly than if I have more salt built up in the substrate. 
Uh, so as counterintuitive as it may seem, getting more salt in there might actually be your your real solution there. That way, when the plant's eating every day, it's not pulling that ionic balance out of whack nearly as much. And then the the irrigation that you give it can be sufficient to replace some of those negative ions and reset that pH balance. Yeah, you know, and, and make sure you are getting uh, substrate EC readings. Uh, you know, if you don't have a full array system, get a sensor that you can go in there and take a few readings a day. You know, one before irrigation, one right after irrigation, and then one typically towards the end of the day. Um, and just make sure that hey, you know, I, I can see that the trend is my plants eating more nutrients than I'm putting in the substrate. Yeah, you know, one thing I've noticed, even if I'm just using the Solus, if I get my before irrigation, after irrigation, then before lights off. Sometimes I'll see that my uh, before irrigation EC has not actually risen that much compared to my feed EC. And if we were to draw a line, that line would be pretty flat and possibly going downward, going down to below feed EC. And if you've been washing a lot with 2.5, running plenty of runoff, you're probably basically rinsing it back to close to 2.5 every day. So your real baseline has never been able to get up high enough to be able to withstand that, uh, that ionic swing basically throughout the day. Thank you guys so much. Dave, good luck out there. Keep us posted. All right. The live questions are coming in fast and furious. What's happening on YouTube, Mandy? Oh my gosh. Thanks for these questions, y'all. Poppy Gross has one. You said to watch my EC inputs. Can you give me some insights into how this affects pH and the relationship? Yeah. So if we go back to like, uh, let's just say we're in a deep water culture solution and we've got a certain EC in there that EC is 3.0. When it goes in, we have it balanced for pH. Um, pH is the negative log of the concentration of positive ions in solution. So as the plant is pulling out the food that it likes to eat, which is primarily negative ions, we're increasing the positive ion concentration. And that increased concentration is what causes pH to go down. So the plant's always pulling those negative ions out and we're constantly trying to replace that balance. So the only problem is because of the way ionic salts work, we end up with cations and anions. So the plant's not uptaking those anions. That's what's boosting that pH down, <laughs> boosting that concentration up. So it's this constant battle we're in where let's say the plant eats up 1500 ppms of cations, but we had to put in more than that. <laughs> Let's say basically we're leaving anions behind in solution, which is causing that to creep down. That's why I was saying like, if you get your EC baseline up higher, that small amount of cations that the plant's taking out is not as impactful to the overall salt concentration inside the block. Whereas if we're at a low concentration, we're changing that uh, ratio in a much more meaningful way to the plant. Uh, the, the difference between two and three on an EC scale is a lot more impactful than the difference between nine and 10, let's say, in terms of plant health and pH readings. Yeah, and I was, I was trying to look up, um, I think it was Michigan State has a really good article uh, about the different nutrients in solution and how it's affecting your pH. So check out some of the university extensions. They, a lot of times, break this down into you know 10-page articles specifying all, all yep. the different relationships. Yep. And, and remember, you know, like I said, going back to the salts, the way ionic salts work, you've got a positive and a negative component. So we don't have a way to transport a lot of these ions or indeed harness them without having this other positive side to it, positively charged side. It's actually a negative for us because <laughs> it's this whole thing that we got to deal with messing with our pH. Right. And that's, that's where, you know, why, when we look at a primarily soilless hydroponics or a drain to waste system, uh, that's why, because that runoff is, you know, I don't want to say totally useless to everyone, but we're putting it back into an unbuffered media without, you know, remediating it in any way. We're just going to see that pH creep down over time. Awesome. Thanks for that. And Poppy Gross says, you guys answered my question. God, I love this show. You guys are amazing. I strive every day to be this smart about the plant. Aw, you guys, <laughs> they went to school for this. Thanks, <laughs> And they have a lot of experience. Um, but yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Jess Mood had a question. Uh, I was running six minimum six min shots up until 21F, switched to bulk and lowered shots to four min, but added two maintenance shots, checking the moisture sens sensor in the morning. They're still drying back the same. 
can I go back to six men shots and keep the maintenance shots? I know they say smaller shots at this point. What do you guys think? Uh, I mean, we, we just always break it down into P1 and P2 irrigations uh, just to make it easier to talk about. And it sounds like um, you did change your P1s um, and then just added more P1s, if you will. Um, a little bit similar to, to what the guy earlier was talking about, where we're just doing some big irrigations throughout the day. That's That's not our favorite strategy. Um, you know, that being said, it, it does work well for certain strains. Um, typically when I go from generative stacking to vegetative bulking, I'll actually keep the same size P1 and then just add P2 maintenance shots throughout the day. Yeah. I mean, keep it simple and, you know, look at your actual volumes too. You know, when you're switching from, let's say several big, uh, P1s and generative, and then, you know, what we generally go for is cut your volume in half and double your number of irrigations when you're flipping over into uh, veg for P1. For P1. Uh, that, that's a simple way to look at, hey, we know how much dryback volume we need to replace on a daily basis to reach field capacity. And now we're going to maximize shots in that. Uh, the next step is, you know, the most difficult way to do this would definitely be with the scale. That would take a lot of time, but go get something like the Solus. And if you want to dial back those P2s in the afternoon, if I had to guess that your dryback is, the same size roughly now that you're in bulking as generative. If we looked at that graph, you're going upward and man, I wish we had a board behind us to draw on, on this one. But a lot of times, once your plant starts uptaking water really fast, you'll be putting on those P2s and it'll feel like you're keeping that moisture content up. But the reality is throughout the day, you're putting the P2s on and that moisture content is continuing to fall in the afternoon. Some of those P2s are actually encouraging the plant to drink more and more essentially and transpire faster, especially if your environment is pretty good. So although if you don't have access to a graph, you know, in time series data, if right now you're thinking you're bringing it up and holding it up at high capacity, like I said, it's probably going down. So you might think that if you were hitting 55% field capacity that you were at, let's say 48 or 50% at the end of the day, if you don't have a sensor in there and you can't go confirm that your reality might be, Hey, I'm planning on doing all these shots throughout the afternoon, but <clears throat> I'm actually ending my day at a much lower water concentration than I intended on. So I'm getting a pretty equivalent total dryback compared to what was happening in generative. I'm going to try and, and show the irrigation curves with my forearms here uh, to indicate what you were talking about. Uh, so my left <laughs> arm is our P1s and then my right arm is our P2s. Uh, so if we're in generative and we don't have any P2s, we're going to be like a peaky mountain, right? Mm -hmm. uh, here's our irrigation field capacity. And then here's our dry back the next day. Uh, if we have hit field capacity and we have P2s keeping us at field capacity, uh, we're going to be a little bit flat topped until obviously the end of the irrigation. If our P1s aren't getting to field capacity, then sometimes we'll see uh, that actually, you know, irrigation that that top level rise a little bit with P2s. Um, and then the situation that Seth was just describing where our P2s may not be getting back up to field capacity. We're going to be, you know, not, not always, you know, it's still going to be flat topped, but you're going to have a fairly downward slope in the general trend of water content. Yep. Your jigsaw is going to be angled pretty sharply. Um, and one thing to remember too, is like when we're talking about those specific graph shapes, that's what is optimal in larger plant populations. Uh, when we're talking about bulking, there's more than one way to skin the cat. Let's say <laughs> you're still, even if you're water, you're losing water content in the afternoon. As long as you're putting on those P2s, even if you're putting on 1% P2s and you're losing capacity, you're still effectively bulking the plant. It's just that you might start hitting a point where you're drying back too far, more than is what's safe and either spiking your EC or if you're in a lower water content cocoa, you could accidentally start going down below that 20% mark and risking hitting wilting point. Thanks for that advice. And Jason, thanks for illustrating that. I told you guys, these guys will do anything to help y'all grow better. So, and how many times have we said we need a whiteboard? I, I was guys, horrified gonna... for a second. I was curious to see what he was going to do over there, but it, it turned out pretty good. Wasn't sure it was going to work. I thought enough. I need to get markers and like put some dots on his arms. Draw some oh my gosh. I'm writing this down though. Oh my gosh. Great questions coming in y'all. And thank you for those over on YouTube. Um, I think it's it for now. So I'm going to pass it back to Keisha for our Instagram questions. Awesome. Thank you, Mandy. Yeah, like <laughs> you just blew my mind. Um, just wanted to share this comment. Cypher, glad to have you on today. Just wrote, hi, y'all. Sorry, I'm late. I'm stuck in trim jail today. We are <laughs> thinking of you. <laughs> All right. 
Next question, again, on the theme of pH, let's just like go for it. So Pangbugs wrote in, hey, I'd like to know how the plant would respond to a higher input pH getting to the end of veg, say 6.2 or 6.4 pH. Assuming we've been hardening them off on 600 PPFD light intensity and feeding bloom nutrients prior to flip, could this help maintain a good pH during stretch without dropping too low? A little insight on pH values for veg and flower would be appreciated. What do you guys think? Oh, that's that's definitely uh, a higher pH earlier than I would prefer. Sometimes, you know, as we get towards the the end of flower ripening, we'll we'll let that pH climb up a little bit. We we want to keep that nitrogen solubility really good when we're coming out of veg and into flower. We still want some explosive growth to get as big a plant as fast as we can. So I would personally keep my pH. Um, right and check with the type of media that I'm using at the end of edge. Yeah. And, you know, raising and lowering pH, uh, I'll run down to a 5.5. If my runoff's coming up at coming off at like 6.5 and I'll run up to a 6.5 if my runoff's going a little low. And, uh, those are absolutely band-aids in the situation. That means I'm trying to adjust that pH to actually bring me in. And really the amount of, uh, sulfuric acid I put in there or phosphoric acid isn't the actual solution to my nutrition problems. That's just helping me restore the pH. So any, again, it's, it's just, it's using a bandaid to kind of cover up a wound that's just starting to open up. And uh, usually you want to go back and look at like, um, do I need to push more runoff? Now, sometimes I'll end up in a situation where I'm not pushing runoff for maybe three days. Uh, I personally don't like to go out a lot longer than that because I start to lose visibility and you can start to hit some pretty severe pH drops if you go too long, but Plenty of people will go up to like a week, maybe a little more with no runoff. And that's where, you know, like early gener- early generative, those first two weeks, we're really trying to crank up that EC. That's sometimes where, you know, a little bit higher pH input might help out. But again, get in the mindset that anytime you've got to adjust that uh, feed pH outside of, you know, your desired range, we're, we're really band-aiding it. We're not, we're not actually solving that ionic concentration problem. Yeah. And if you're going to be playing with feed pH very much. Uh, make sure you are taking runoff readings every day of pH. And if you're yep. you know at the point where you're trying to do no runoff, I always recommend still to have just enough runoff to take those measurements. Yeah, I mean we're we're using technology to crop steer to a T here. Um, if we go back, one of the first cocoa techs I ever read about, I don't know, over a decade ago now, at this point, but. Uh, you know, the, the recommendation is like a pretty high perlite mix, some other amendments. So we didn't have to really worry about pHing our tap water. And then some of those early texts kind of came from this bridging the gap between deep water culture and soilless hydroponics. And one of my funniest examples is uh, one of the solutions I heard early on was, you know, we're growing small plants, take your one gallon pot and dunk it in a bucket of nutrient solution until it's still at tops bubbling and then put it back in your tent. And what what we were doing there was just basically completely replacing everything in the block every time we watered, which the intent is like, Hey, I have pretty ultimate control when I can replace this volume of water, this completely and this quickly. Uh, it just turns out that that's incredibly inefficient. Uh, it even sucks if you're growing in your closet in the room that you live in, because now you've got this whole complicated watering process. That's all messy and a pain in the butt, but that's, it's kind of where the strategy comes from. We're taking that same concept where we want to control exactly what's going on. We're just slowing down our ability or slowing down the rate at which we can affect those changes. I mean, there's some places that run flood and drain. I just, I just yeah. saw, you know, a picture in my head of the, the, <laughs> it's the ways that still works. Yep. But, but, you know, as awesome as I, I love flood and drain. To be honest, like that, that sounds like a dream to me to roll benches into a greenhouse and drop some, you know, roll, roll, blah, roll it from zone to zone. It's really easy. Water's going in, it's draining out. I don't have emitters. I don't have all this stuff, but then I also have this huge volume of water that I now have to deal with. That's constantly drifting out of my desired range. So if I have 5,000 gallons recirculating water and in seven days, now I'm at half the nutrient capacity that I wanted to be in my pH is drifting. I've got to do a half dump, a full dump. I've got to deal with all this excess water. And uh, yeah, that, that can get expensive, especially in a city setting or, you know, if you're a rural greenhouse, that's another thing to keep in mind. Like at least uh, here in Washington, for instance, the water running off of your property 
can't be any higher uh, PPMs in the water coming out of your well or running onto your property. So there's kind of a, not, not just, you know, all of us want to have a little bit cleaner world in terms of the environment, but you've also got to look at what your local regulations allow to some systems are very cost prohibitive or just simply not practical in certain situations. Outstanding guys. Thank you so much. Um, Alex just posted a little note here and Alex, you're welcome to unmute yourself if you like. The plant IPM is intense with flood and drain. If one, uh, if uh, one plant sick, yeah, messes up everything. Yeah. Yeah. So get that. I'll whine about slabs sometimes when people are having those problems, like, ah, oh, you lose one, you lose three. But yeah, mm -hmm. when you go to flood and drain, it's if one's sick, they all are. That's for sure. Yeah. Awesome question and answer. So good luck out there, Ping Buds. And Mandy, we we got about 10 minutes left on the show. What's happening on YouTube? Oh my gosh, breaking news. We posted a poll and we just got the results. Oh my gosh. Thank you guys for voting today. Our question was, what's your favorite phase of growth? So veg, gen, flower, or harvest? And I was kind of surprised by this one. Uh, veg got 43%, gen, 0%. What's up with that, y'all? Flower, 57%. Okay, I kind of get that. And then harvest is 0%. Is that because of all the extra work? I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, got zero votes because it's yeah. the trickiest. Takes <laughs> takes the most uh you know full feedback of analyzing how they're, they're growing this time and, and making some irrigation changes uh yes a bunch of people who are growers and although they might be smokers they're not just smokers and not growers so i think it's it's definitely hard not to have some sort of passion for the process when you're involved in it especially if you you know just enjoy watching plants and things grow i mean uh personally i love watching the plant throughout like generative stretch you know, when I'm seeing that plant just take off and new morphology is happening a little bit every week, that's, that's my favorite time. And then really flowering in general, you know, I get to see so much happening with the plant and then see the results of what I'm doing, you know, and one, one cool thing about cannabis is it doesn't take that terribly long to grow. So every two months I get to see, uh, what, what changes I made, what kind of effects they had. Then if you, you know, couple that with running a facility, that's got five or 10 flower rooms, you get a lot of interesting things happening all at once. It can really kind of you know, keep your mind active and I don't know, it keeps it interesting. That's, that's one thing when we're, we're all doing something super cyclical, right? Like the most you can do to keep your mind engaged, the better. And also then you're, I don't know, you're putting out a better product. You can have more pride in your craft when you're doing that as well. I, I really like, uh, you know, into veg early flower, it, you know, it's a time when we get to see all the roots popping out of the bottom and we get to give that plant uh, sometimes more media. And so, you know, we get to be hands-on and get to, get to move them and smell them. <laughs> the, the fresh plants, I think, always smell really good. Oh, yeah. What a bunch of oh, weed nerds on this podcast right now. Alex had a, a note here. Jen's most interesting for sure. I love watching that stack happening. Heck yeah. Love that. Uh, I think mine wasn't an answer, but it's consumption consuming um but we'll add that next time that, that one, one falls under harvest i mean that's that's a close <laughs> second for me to flower an important a, part of the process yeah. indeed well you got to test um, it i mean you know yeah to know the quality of course exactly. yeah we're all here for that um we have a couple of minutes left in the show so i'm going to get to this question from high cloud society can you give me some best practices for heat when home growing uh i mean as consistent as possible um, it can always be kind of tricky when home growing. It just depends on what kind of setup you have. And, uh, you know, obviously if you're in a house, try to have a, a separate HVAC zone for, for that area. You know, if you're in a, a tent or something, uh, you know, try to get it, get a heater. Um, or if you need to get rid of, uh, heat, then, you know, some type of AC unit in there is going to be helpful. Uh, you know, if you're in a greenhouse, Sometimes I, I used to just put 55 gallon barrels full of, of water because I didn't have uh, heat or electricity in my greenhouses. And so um, that would absorb the, the sun's rays throughout the day and had enough mass that it would keep my, my plants a little bit happier overnight. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of jerry-rigged ways that you can do it uh, that are low cost. Oh, yeah. I mean, what, one awesome thing I think about home growing is, uh, you know, if you're if you're home growing for yourself, especially now you're growing your own medicine or just trying to have your own high quality product, we're not necessarily looking at trying to get, you know, four plus pounds per light. 
In fact, if you, unless you've invested in CO2, <laughs> really nice lights, I mean, unless you've really gone and built your Ferrari in your basement, um, you, you probably don't even expect that without running into some serious problems. But one really cool thing that I like to take advantage of is uh, cannabis, especially really high quality, high terp flower is expressed very well at about 65 to 74 degrees. <laughs> so conveniently, that's about where I leave my thermostat in my house. Uh, you know, 65 to 70 is where I'm most comfortable. And yeah, I don't get quite as fast to plant growth if I got that heat up. I'm not optimizing everything, but for my situation where I'm trying to grow my own high quality flower and I want it to be grown by me, clean, I know exactly what went into it. And, uh, generally better than what I see on the shelf for the average price range. Um, I'm going to do everything I can to try to keep my, I mean, just to keep it simple, set my HVAC for that level. And then if you've got a tent in a big enough room where it's not going to, you know, just heat up the, only that room, maybe you got to leave the door open. Maybe you got to adjust some central, you know, central uh, air settings, but I don't know. I, I think it's wonderful. I've had great times home growing, just not having to mess with it too much as long as I have good air circulation inside of my little grow room. And the other thing too, you know, uh, just think about where you're actually comfortable at. Like if you like your house, it's 68 degrees. And I mean, you might have to get some humidity going early on, but uh, if you like your house at 68 degrees and 45% humidity, man, you're right in the, that deep purple ripening zone pretty easily there. So that's, that's definitely something to consider. It's, it's a lot less of a challenge for the home grower to push quality than it is to blow it up to a huge industrial scale. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. And real quick, I have one more question about pH. Should we be, should we be upping pH the last few weeks of flower? I don't mind letting it uh, rise up a little bit just to, you know, reduce nitrogen solubility. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing to watch too, is like at the end of flower, you're, you're kind of playing with a, uh, an interesting pH balance, right? So when, as a plant enters senescence, we should see it stop uptaking, not completely, but we're going to see a big slowdown on that nutrient uptake. So when you're pushing those big generative drybacks in ripening, a good thing to do is just pay attention to your pH. You know, you might see it coming out a little lower. And then as the plant stops feeding, it stabilizes a little more. It might go from going in at a five, nine or a 6.0 and coming out at a five, six to, Oh, we go in at a five, nine and we come out at a five, eight to a five, nine across the board. And what that's going to tell me is I don't really need to pick that up too much. However, if I'm continuing, cause it, and it's strain to strain, right? Some strains really do senesce inside of eight weeks. Some of them were kind of pushing to mature with that uh, generative growth strategy at the end. So for those ones that are still trying to uptake plants, you know, if I've got a, a plant that usually I would want to run 10 weeks and I'm trying to harvest in an eight or nine, I might accept that, expect that plant to actually continue to have, you know, some dropping pH during my ripening period. And that's where uh, that's, that's a button I want to hit for sure. <laughs> Raise that pH just a little bit to adjust for what we're doing. Again, that's a, that's a little bandaid, but that is one of the things you can pull is adjusting that up to about a 6.5. I would not though do it as a rule across all of my cultivars. Um, and as Jason pointed out though, there are some, you know, with a lot of, uh, a lot of nutrient lines out there right now, we're, we're staying pretty high nitrogen towards the end. So that's another thing to look at, you know, as we go below 6.0 in the root zone, that's where we see peak nitrogen uptake. And if you're running well, calcium nitrates, the most popular nitrogen to put in hydroponics right now, when we're looking at nitrate, the plant can't regulate nitrate uptake uh, nearly as well as it can with uh, pretty much any other plant nutrient. That nitrate is being preferentially uptaken by the plant. So keeping our pH at that 6.0 or slightly above is going to help us out just, just a little bit. We're going to stay inside of a healthy range, but not quite be it where we're at at 5.6, which is like prime super fast nitrogen uptake. Wow. Is this the pH episode or what? Wow. That just happened organically. We did not plan for this. Um, that is it for the questions on YouTube. Thank you guys for all of those. And thanks for all the shout outs. Uh, it's always a great show. Um, back to you, Keisha. I think we have a couple more minutes left. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mandy. Yeah. The, the questions were on fire today. Thank you all so much for submitting those. I have one last question just to close this out from Instagram and the folks who submitted us, uh, questions over there. We will get to them when we can, but you know what? If you're on live, that's your best shot. Okay, Adam wrote in wanting to know, in 45% cocoa, when going from stretch gen 
to bulk veg. If I'm drawing back too far during P3, it is better. Uh, is it better to continue P2 shots, uh, size shots, 4% through P3, or begin P1 3% shots at lights on so that by three hours, I'm resaturating 20 to 25% to full capacity. Thanks for all the knowledge. You guys get all that? I kind of stumbled over it. Yeah, kind of. I, I think yeah. we can we can work with that and, and generalize. Um, you know, for, for P1s, typically I'll, you know, try and get up to field capacity within, uh, you know, one to two hours of my first irrigation. Um, and in general, that first irrigation is going to be one to two hours after lights on. Um, and so I'm always talking about irrigation window. If my drybacks are too big before the next day's irrigation, I'll just make that irrigation window a little bit wider. Um, you know, that being said, if we're in the wrong size media, we're, we're always going to be struggling because we might have to push too many irrigations to be steering generatively. And, uh, you know, if we're in too large a media, then, uh, you know, a lot of times we're just not going to see the drybacks that we want in order to push vegetatively. Yeah. I mean, I think a good, a good spot to start, as you mentioned, you know, P1, P2, and then P3. So that tells me, you know, I mean, generally we talk about P1 and P2 morning and afternoon irrigations. Um, however, where, where the whole P thing comes from program, <laughs> that's kind of back to old school controllers where you got to run a different program for different settings on your irrigation schedules. So like, for instance, my P1 program one might be those 6% shots or 3% reaching field capacity, whereas my program two is going to be smaller, you know, one to 2% shots in the afternoon. Now, if I want to get real fancy or if I'm going like, hey, I need to have four P1s at a certain size and I want my fifth one to actually be bigger, what that's going to look like programming wise is four P1s one P2, and then your what we normally call P2s are going to be your P3. Now, when you mentioned P3, if you're talking about watering past lights off, that's going to be a pretty big sign that you probably have too small of a media. You know, I mean, one thing like Jason mentioned, one thing to remember is that, you know, that dryback is always related to plant and media size. So probably look at, you know, if you're over drying and feeling like you have to go to a P3, say overnight, we would look at to try to stay generative, hitting our P1s in that one to two hour range, and then not watering until about one to two hours before lights off, and then bringing it back up the amount we need to correct that so we don't over dry. Not necessarily pushing runoff, but if I was going to dry from 45% down to 15, I need to make sure that I get at least, uh, you know, five, if not two, 5% shots on there before the lights turn off. So I'm coming in at a much more reasonable level in the morning. And that's, that's a bandaid, but that's the best you can really do in that situation is really create two distinct irrigation windows and try to gap out as much as you can between them. Yeah. Anytime that we have to irrigate outside of the photo period, uh, it either means that we're not getting up to field capacity in the substrate um, and, or, uh, media size needs to be a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Back to the old flood and drain issue. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you've ever tried that, it, the, the, the frequency increases a little bit as those plants get bigger. Right. And then finally to the point where you go, okay, we have to have quite a few more, even overnight irrigations than we wanted. Okay. Maybe we go from a, a four inch to a six inch block on this next run, just to try to deal with that and make our system a little bit more efficient and uh, re redundancy is huge. When, anytime we're talking about irrigation systems, I, I can't stress that enough with people. Uh, they all fail, especially if not properly maintained. So if you can find a plant and pot size that gives you good controllability, but not so much of a fast dryback rate that you back yourself into a corner and you start having plants drop if you miss one P2 in a day because a pump failed or a solenoid failed or emitters plugged up. I, I really like to keep myself in a zone where I've got, I don't know, at least six to eight hours of lights on before I'm hitting wilting plants. That gives me enough time to actually fix my irrigation. Usually, you know, that in most size rooms, excluding uh, some of our more massive greenhouse friends, um, most indoor grows, if you time it out, right, you can have backup parts on hand and build your system. So unless something's inside a wall, you can replace it in a short amount of time. I mean, I, I go as far as keeping, uh, I, I have spare irrigation lines around that already have emitters in them. So if my table starts to plug up unpredictably, I go, okay, do I send someone around and have them spend 
50 hours in the next two weeks popping out emitters and fixing this or this stuff's cheap. I'm going to rip it out and replace it and not have it interrupt my run. Wow. Thank you guys so much for that. We had to go over because we're just like sharing knowledge and blowing minds today. Seth and Jason, thank you so much for a great conversation this week. Mandy, thank you for co-moderating with me. And thank you to our producer, Chris, for holding it down behind the scenes. Before we go, if you're looking for any Arroyo gear, Arroyo.shop is now open for business and we got a new promo. The Arroyo hat trick is in motion. If you put three hats in your shopping cart, you're going to watch some magical savings appear. So quantities are limited and so is this promo. Get your merch before someone else does. All right. Thank you all for joining us for this week's episode of Office Hours. We do this every Thursday. And the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. To learn more about Arroyo, book a demo at arroyo.io. One of our experts would be happy to walk you through all the ways it can be used to improve your cultivation production process. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover on Office Hours, post questions anytime in the Arroyo app, drop your questions in the chat or on YouTube, send us an email at support.arroyo at metergroup.com, DM us on all the socials. We want to hear from you. We'll send everybody in attendance a link to today's video. It'll also live on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. See you at the next session. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.